Welcome to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Our mission is to bring you discussions on a wide array of topics in the coaching world to grow players on and off the court. You can connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and also reach us directly through email at basketballteacherpodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Coach Mike Hernandez. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you guys so much for joining us here for another episode. Wherever in the world you are listening to us from, whatever platform you're listening to us on, as always, thank you guys so much for the support. Thanks for sharing this around. Really looking forward to this episode, and thank you guys so much for joining us for it. Uh, so many coaches I talk to, whether it's on this show or off this show, they 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 love talking defense. And when it comes to X's and O's, they get so passionate when I have like in-person conversations with people. Sometimes their eyes light up, you know, talking about defense and talking about everything that goes into that. And and I'm really excited to kind of bring that topic back into the forefront here uh, with today's episode. So this episode is titled Locked Left Defense. And so some of you might be able to guess what, what, what this is entailing, and some of you might be a little unsure, kind of curious about what this is, and I, I am myself. So my guest today is going to talk about what that means, lock left defense. We'll talk about the origins of it. We'll talk about the layers that build up to it, what it looks like in practice, some counters to it based on what the offense is throwing at you. So Focusing on the defensive side of things today, very excited to get into it, and without further ado, let's sort of jump right into it here. Very happy to be joined uh, by a coach who wears multiple coaching hats, uh, but I am talking to the head boys basketball coach at Odessa High School out in Missouri. Coach Michael Lewis is joining us today. Coach, how are we doing? Good. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Yeah, this will be exciting. Again, this is something that uh, is is a little bit new to me, but uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to learning, and that's kind of what it's all about. So I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of the origins and your defensive philosophy and how that works. So this this will be fun. So let's go ahead and start, Coach, with your journey. Uh, where's the basketball game taking you? Where's your coaching journey taking you? And and what led you to Odessa? So. Oddly enough, like I have a very untraditional or what I feel is untraditional path to how I become became a coach and especially a head coach. Um, in high school, I was actually not a very good basketball player or at least not at the caliber of school that we had at the time. I graduated from a school in Independence, Missouri. And while I was in school, we won three consecutive district championships, had great talent, a really great culture. And after my sophomore year of high school, um, we had some dudes that it was unquestionably were going to play over me. And I decided, you know what, this probably isn't for me. I'm probably never going to actually play. So I kind of took a step back and had a conversation with the head coach, like asked how else I could help and kind of assumed more of a manager statistics type role. And frankly, from that, like, my perspective on coaching kind of started. I got to observe the game and some practices and really communicate with the coach on more of like an assistant coach type level rather than like player perspective. And that kind of started those conversations. So that was awesome. Um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, in high school, I was not a very good basketball player. I was actually a pretty solid golfer, had my moments in that. And then I was also a pretty decent debater. Those were my kind of go-tos. But um, then I graduated and I went on, kind of bounced around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. 
in life. Um, then I think I was two years out of high school and I'd sent the coach a message just seeing if there's any way I could help out. I kind of missed being a part of something. And he shot me a message back and was like, yeah, our summer camp is in two weeks. He's like, come out, be a part of that. And so I showed up and he introduced me like he introduced any of the other coaches. Uh, obviously, my resume was a little bit shy of what the rest of the coaches on staff were. But um, went through that camp, ended up being a volunteer on his staff for a few years. Uh, got my first opportunity to actually be hired on a staff. I think I did three years of volunteering. And I finally got hired as a C-team coach. Did that for two years. And then I was a JV coach for one year through that whole process. I was kind of finishing my education degree, was doing some student teaching. And then once that season ended, I was applying for jobs throughout the uh, Kansas City area and a job out kind of on the outskirts of Kansas City at Odessa opened up for, I teach special education. Okay. Um, so they offered me a job. And I went out there planning on being the assistant coach. Uh, but in going out there, I knew that the guy that was there would potentially be looking to move on at some point. Whereas the person at the school that I came from probably wasn't going to leave anytime soon. So I knew head coaching opportunity may come. I didn't expect it to come. As soon as it did, he ended up leaving about a month after I got hired to be an assistant. They let me run all the summer stuff, and then they ended up hiring me after our summer. So that's kind of how I got to be a head coach. Wow. Um, in my time at Odessa, we we done some good things. We kind of turned the culture around. We They were a 6-17 and 17 team the year before I got to go out there, and we won 20, 20 wins that first season on the back of a bunch of very experienced seniors that were hungry for that opportunity. So I kind of was blessed with that. What do you attribute if uh, the the culture to, or what was the culture that, that you sort of uh, tried tried to implement when you took over? And honestly, I kind of lucked into a situation of the culture in Odessa is just very proud. Like they yeah. take pride in being a bulldog and having that energy. And on Friday nights for football games, everybody shows out. Basketball games, everybody wanted you to win parents are supportive. So in a lot of ways in those areas, I, I lucked out a lot. Mm -hmm. They just want, they just wanted and needed somebody to facilitate that energy and kind of believe in their kids and want them to be successful. And I feel like I came in at the right time with a group that was capable of that and had that type of energy. And they bought into what we were doing extremely quickly, which again, with seniors, getting a new coach, I'd imagine that can be very difficult. Yeah, sure. And they did it without fail, bought in from day one, and it led to early success, which made long-term success really a lot easier. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. It's always nice when you – sometimes you get into some situations where maybe, like, the the program itself is maybe a little bit down or not necessarily where – 
uh, it once was or where it could be, but then you have like all of the other aspects of the culture and like the community and a lot of support from, you know, extrinsic forces that are there or even within the school that really want to succeed and see the value in athletics. It's it's kind of like this perfect situation. You get to kind of take over this program, kind of like help rebuild it and get it on track. And then you have all these people that are rooting, encouraging and are, are there to support the athletic program itself. That's pretty cool to see. I could not have gotten luckier. The principal at the high school that first year was a Final Four basketball coach in the state of Missouri mm -hmm. prior to being a principal. So he was a great guy to bounce ideas off of. Our athletic director was a top-notch human being. Our assistant principal was a Class Six defensive coordinator prior to becoming an assistant principal. Like our sports culture was amazing and supportive, and it was everything that a first-year head coach really needed. No, that, that's excellent. That's awesome. Uh, now, I know that you have other coaching experience as well. Uh, I know you, we just talked about off air that you're currently uh, coaching soccer. And I know that you not only have you coached golf, but I know that that was also a sport that you played. And so I'm really curious about those other sports because I always love to pick coaches brain about about this. What do you get from coaching those other sports that you can then take and bring to your basketball coaching setting? You know, I feel like those other environments are just so different. Like a basketball culture is still bound in basketball culture. Like what kids see on TV, what they see, like how basketball has grown while it's different everywhere. There's a lot of similarities everywhere. Um, I know in golf specifically, like it's so much different to every sport, like being a golfer, the mindset that I had as a golfer and the things that it really taught me, you know, taught you confidence. It taught you patience, how to overcome adversity, commitment level to getting better at it and kind of having that little swagger, that attitude, the amount of times that, like I said, I wasn't a very good basketball player. I'll be talking to shooters about being in a shooting slump. Well, I can't mm -hmm. talk to you about how I broke a shooting slump because I wasn't very good at it. But I can talk to you about how I overcome hitting a bad drive in golf and the mindset that you have to have to do that. And I feel like that's very similar because if I approached a tee shot on a golf course, it was like, man, there's some woods over there. There's some water over there. I don't know if I can hit this ball in the fairway. Bad things are going to happen. Well, the same thing happens with a shooter. If he approaches a shot like, man, I've missed my last three shots. Oh, today's not my day. If that negative mindset creeps in there, you've already mm -hmm. lost before you even took the shot. Yeah. And so it's just conversations like that, that especially having been a golf player and then being a golf coach, again, the kind of uniquenesses to that. When I'm coaching basketball, like if you're having an off time or you're having kind of a slump, I can pull you out. Or, I mean, at the end of the day, the game's only 32 minutes long. When I was coaching golf, if you got out there and had a bad first three holes, we're out there for 15 more holes, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So that's six and a half hours. We can make that miserable, or you can figure it out and start playing better. And that speaks to your preparation, as well as my ability to help fix your mindset on the spot. And so it's just little things like that, learning how to communicate with kids that isn't yelling at them because yelling at a kid on the golf course who just hit a bad shot probably wouldn't be super productive. 
So it's just learning the nuances of how to communicate, how to operate in a different environment that isn't just basketball, mm-hmm. and then taking that and kind of thinking back to how I would talk to a golf student athlete and using that same thing when talking to my basketball players. And it's, it seems to have helped. It's helped my relationship with our kids. Again, rather than I'm not a yeller, I can't even yeah. play like I'm a yeller. So <laughs> that's helpful. Yeah, I imagine like that's something very unique, especially thinking about like the golf sense of things, right? Kind of like the the mental game and the mental aspect, right? That that the mental strength I, I feel like it takes to to be a golf player, especially if, if as you mentioned, right? If the first few holes aren't really going go your way, you still got to rebound and you still got to try and 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 recover and still play through the rest of it. Like there, there's a lot of mental strength and mental fortitude that I think translates from one area uh, from the golf course and easily can make its way to uh, a basketball court setting. For sure. And I think that stuff carries to life. And that's yeah. a lot of what we talk about. Like, again, like you said, your shot may not be falling, but go rebound, go play defense. Sometimes your driver is not hitting good, but you have to scramble and you have to still find a way to make the best score you can out of every situation. If you throw in the towel off the tee, it's going to be a long, miserable process. Well, that carries into your job. That carries into your you know, relationship life, your friendships. If you have that mindset and that I'm going to fight through this, it really helps carry through. And so that's kind of what we try to instill. Yeah. And uh, speaking as somebody who's a, I'm a disc golf player. I'm not a golfer. I do disc golf. And I, I know I've seen holes that I've probably could have bogeyed, but wasn't mentally focused enough and probably took uh, a double or a triple on those. Cause I let one mistake turn into another mistake and, 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 and that, that, that's not good. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely transferable for sure. Now that's, that's cool. It's a real good insight there. All righty, coach. I'm going to ask you lock left defense. Uh, let's let's get the the spoilers uh, out of the way. We'll spoil it for everybody now that that we've led into it. What, 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 where did it originate from? How does it work? What's the philosophy behind it? What's the 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 synopsis of and the background of this lock left defense philosophy? So the concept honestly came from a Twitter video, and I wish that I remembered or could find that Twitter video. Because I cannot, and whoever that Twitter video deserves a shout out for, you know, kind of setting this up for me. Um, but it was just a guy teaching, kind of, and he he kept hitting that lock left term. And he talked about, it was a full court transition type situation. And he kind of talked about how we're constantly taught we want to turn kids. We want to turn kids. Why do we want to turn kids? And so he posed that question and it was right after I'd gotten hired and right after I was like starting to build my philosophies on what I wanted us to do. And so I went to the guy that was going to be my JV coach at the time. And we had that conversation. I was like, really, like, why do we want to turn kids? Because if you think about it, like if you're not an insane elite defender, what happens when you turn a kid one or two times? The second he gets back to his dominant hand, he usually ends up winning that situation and gets past you. I know for me as a player, I was going to do anything possible to get back to my right hand. And that was every single time. And so I kind of took that and kind of played with it in my mind. I was like, you know, how can we apply this all the time? Sure. And then I thought back to my JV coaching days at Fort, 
I worked under a guy named John Hawkins and we kind of had those same conversations where sometimes we would flip back and forth and sometimes we would only force you left. And sometimes we'd let you go both ways and just kind of play you to our best of our ability. And it seemed like a lot of times when you forced left, better things happened. And so again, it just took us into that mindset of like, all right, so let's take this. What if we teach this all the time? No matter where you are, we're going to force your person left. What are the benefits that come from that? Well, the benefits are defense from a defensive perspective. If I'm always going to force that guy at the top of the key left, if I'm one pass to his left, I should be in the gap every single time. If I if the ball's on the wing and I'm guarding the guy in the corner and I'm one pass to the left, I should always be in the gap and just teaching that. And then on the reverse side, you go to the right, you're one pass to the right. We call that being in the flat. It's not the same like on the line, up the line concept that we're taught. You're more of a little bit deeper and a little bit more in a help side rotation piece because if we're constantly forcing left, that pass to the right is going to be slower. The odds of the ball going right should be less so I can have that guy already in a help position. And so, again, the questions that people often ask is like, why are you doing this? What does that help? if you can build consistency for your defense and I can tell my defensive guys, this is where you should be regardless of who has the ball, you know, in a lot of like pack line, those type of defenses, it's force baseline, it's force middle. Well, depending on which side of the floor you're on, that changes how you close out. That changes where you are from a like visual perceptive perception on where you should be defensively. Well, I don't like that. Like, I don't like that change for players. I feel like they should always feel like they're in the same spot, regardless of where the ball is. And so that's kind of, again, the thought process to what it helps defensively. From an offensive standpoint, I always joke I grew up in the NBA 2K video game era. You know, <laughs> yeah. they, you know how they graded players on those? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, that guy may be an A-minus shooter. He may be a C ball handler. He may be a B overall, that kind of thing. So I look at high school players that way. And I'm like, all right, how can I take this A-minus player and turn him into a B-minus player? How can I take this B player and turn him into a C player? Well, the, the answer for me, the real quick, easy answer, is I want to put the ball in his non-dominant hand. Because ideally even if he's still a decent passer, like he's still a B-minus passer with his left hand, he's not an A-minus passer with his left hand. That benefits us. And if I can do that with an A-minus player, that C player, that maybe fifth guy that they don't really want doing a whole lot, if I can put the ball in his left hand, maybe that's going to make him an F player. And that's going to cause him to make more mistakes. So it doesn't always help with that top guy, especially if we're talking dudes that going on to play college ball have put in – incredible amount of hours in the gym but it does take advantage of those dudes that maybe haven't worked on that offhand as someone who didn't work on his offhand very much I would have hated to been forced left all the time and so that kind of took that mindset because again thinking how would I have not wanted to be guarded this is 100% it <laughs> And so then the question that almost everyone's going to ask you is, 
well, what do you do when there's a left-handed player with the ball? Yep. Like, that's a great and fair question. Like, yeah, left-handed players are going to happen. My two responses to that are, one, what percentage of people in the world are left-handed? Do you know the answer to that? I do not, but are you going to tell me? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the exact answer. I kind of, like, Googled it coming into this. Okay. It, it's anywhere from, like, 8 to 15% is the speculation of, like, what percentage of the world is left-handed. So, frankly, I'm comfortable with my odds going into playing just about anybody that your best player probably is not left-handed. So, I'm at minimum going to take – one to five of your starters and make them worse by forcing them into their left hand. And then even beyond that, I'm going to look at how we teach sports, how we set up classrooms, all those situations. We set them up for right-handed people. As I was typing this, I was looking around our classroom. Every single desk is a right-handed desk. You know why? Because we play to that 88%. And those other 12% have to adjust. Well, we teach sports the same way. We focus on right-handed layups. We focus on right-handed attacks. We obviously try to break that down and get those other people better with their left hand. But in training, and especially by the time you get to high school, even left-handed people have focused and learned like a right-handed person. So they're still not as comfortable with their dominant hand as a right person is with their right hand. Right, And so those are my two main arguments. And then my third argument is, again, kind of like what I talked about earlier, if we can set it up to where we're constantly in the right spots and always teaching the same help rotations in the same places that you should be on the floor, then I'm going to trust that my five guys on the floor defensively are going to do what we do every single practice and every single game better than what your guy's going to do going left-handed, even if he's left-handed. Mm-hmm. So that's, kind of, again, the theology and the ideas behind it. And we've seen a lot of success from it. Last year was kind of hard. Uh, I probably didn't buy into it as much as I wanted to. We kind of threw some zones in there and other stuff. But we saw a lot of success from it. And you see how uncomfortable it makes those opposing offenses because – they find themselves stuck on that left side of the floor. They find themselves. We played one of the top scorers in the city last year, and every single time he would get going downhill left-handed, two, three dribbles, pick up, kick out. Almost every single time he got it got him out of that scoring mindset. Well, he didn't hardly score until like the third or fourth quarter. It was just – it seems like it works, and so that's what helped me buy into it that much more. Okay, so um, let's, because there's a lot of, lot of little questions, a lot of things going out of my mind here. So I'll, I'll streamline these to make this uh, an, an efficient series of questions. So let, let, let's, let's talk then about the, the layers. Okay, so you bought into this where we're bringing this into the program. This is going to be our philosophy, regardless of, of, of handedness. We're going, we're going lock left. So what are the layers here? What, what, what's the process of even, I, I guess before we even start with the layers, when, when you were implementing this and bringing this up to, to your guys, was, was the buy-in there right away? Was there some skepticism? Or, well, what was the reception? Oh, 100% there was some skepticism. For one, like 
I mean, I was a 26-year-old first-year head coach coming yeah. into a lot of these dudes' senior years. So they played years of AAU. They're now three, four-year varsity players. So they were skeptic of a, a lot of the things that we were doing early on because it was different than anything they'd ever done. And now I'm throwing something at them that is different than almost anything anyone in basketball-wise does. And so there was a lot of skepticism, and we just tested it. I put the ball in our best player's hands. I said, okay, go left. So he goes left. We're testing shots going left. We're testing passes going left. And I'm like, are you as good at that as you are if I let you go right? He's like, well, no. I was like, okay, so if you're not as good, why is that dude that we're going to line up from on Tuesday that good? He's like, well, he's not going to be. Okay, that answers our question. That That's where we're at with this. And from that moment on, they were they were very bought in on it. At that point, it was just breaking old habits, which was frankly harder than the buy-in. Oh, yeah. What old habits did you think were the hardest to break down? Uh, the, the number one hardest bad habit to break break or I say bad habit different habit sure is how you close out like regardless of where you are we're closing out to your right shoulder and we're forcing you left well that changes a little bit based on your athleticism your ability to guard on ball so if you're slower obviously you're not going to close out as far if they're a shooter those kind of things but just getting them in that mindset of yo I have to close out to that right hand if you're an on ball defender you have one big way with me I said I'm not a yeller there's one real way to get yelled at by me on defense, and that's let your man go right. If we're going to be dedicated to this lock-left concept, for you to break the initial, the main word of the whole concept and let your man go right, that's a problem. And that messes up everything that we're trying to do. So you've got to do that one job, and then I can get on to everybody else. If your man goes left and gets to the bucket, you did your job. That's somebody else's job for not helping you. And so that breaking that initial closeout problem is the first thing. The second habit that we're, we really focus on trying to break is that first explosion step. When that guy does attack left, our guys had a real problem with, we called it opening the gate. You know, that lead foot yeah. when you go get in front of your man, rather than sliding laterally, you take a step back. Well, now you've just given – you're already forcing them in one direction. Now we've taken that and amplified it because you opened your feet. Now he has the middle of the lane, not just the left side of the lane. And so that's something to this day we're still constantly focusing on. And I got to give my uh, – I got a new C team coach this year, and he kind of said that opening the gate concept yeah. this summer, and that just hit home. We're really focusing on like dictionary and terminology – and that really hit me like that makes perfect sense. You open up, man, you're giving up your whole backyard. And that's that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. So that's definitely that first tier is on ball. Like, how do you close out? How do you force your man left? And how do you do that efficiently every single time? So it's. It's, I think it's. I think it must be interesting, and I, I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm I'm imagining that you 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 have players who 
play, you know, AAU, they play club or they, they work with other coaches and other capacities. And I wonder if you feel that sometimes there's kind of like this ideological battle of like what it is that you're, you're having your players do versus like what they get told from other coaches. Is that something like you, you go through or experience at all? Yeah, hundred percent. But I think that again, if we're, if we're focusing as coaches on teaching life lessons and not just teaching basketball, Mm-hmm. like that that's a life lesson like you go to a new job you're going to get new ways to do things you may not like them as much you may find out they're better than the way you used to do things but the key to anything and I use this analogy with my players a lot how many times have you ever been in a situation where there's like four or five different songs going at one time it sounds like chaos and it's miserable well basketball is no different if we got four or five different things going on or four or five players trying to play out of four or five different methodologies or playbooks, that's going to be miserable. Well, in music, when you have one song going on, I don't care what kind of music you listen to, music is beautiful when it's focused, when it's done right, when everybody's on the same page. Basketball is no different. There's a thousand different ways to play basketball right. Five guys have to be on the same page to do any of them correctly. Sure. Yeah. So that's, that's what I teach my kids on a daily basis. Like, Hey, you may not agree with me when you're on the floor. You have to do what I say, or we're going to find somebody who is. He may not be as skilled as you. He may not be as athletic as you, but if he follows what we're doing, he's better for the team. And most dudes really adjust their mindset when that conversation is had. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that that's one of the things that sometimes when working with young people i mean that's something that they struggle with right they they have different coaches they have different trainers they work with and there there's sometimes that philosophy right of like the, yeah but i get told this from somebody else or but i get taught this the other way and like you said it's like that's okay but in this in this job right when you're here and in this particular situation this is what we do and if you go and somewhere else you do it that way and then like you said it's kind of like a life skill and and that i think as coaches we should uh, what's the best way to word this? I, I think what you said was very like, was, was really positive and really awesome in that there are many correct ways to play basketball. And I think that we as coaches just need to remind ourselves of that and, and not necessarily get hung up on our way being the only way to do things or, or assuming that other coaches are necessarily doing things incorrectly or wrong and rather just embracing that there are going to be differences and that that's okay. For sure. And I love the name of your podcast, the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Like, we are here to educate our student athletes on the game of basketball and on life. Well, for me to educate them, this can't be a do what I say because I said it. I have to teach you why you're doing it. And for me to get the most out of you in that, I, I always tell people, like, this is very much a wide generation of students and student athletes. Like, they want to know why they're doing something or they're either not going to do it, or they're not going to put their all into it. I have to be able to explain, just like I'm explaining to you, the lock left defense, we have to have these conversations. And I have to explain this to kids and sometimes to parents, because uh-huh. if, if that parent's having that same conversation at home of like, oh, well, this coach doesn't know what he's talking about, this, this defensive philosophy is so stupid, like, come listen to me talk about it. And we can knock down that barrier together and then we can get everybody on the same page and we're going to be successful. And, but that conversation and that why I have to be willing to have that conversation as much as they are. 
because, again, me as a 26-year-old head coach coming in, I hadn't earned their respect any more than they'd earned mine. I had to use that, use my intelligence to earn that respect from an early point, and that really was helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another good point that you brought up is that you you really want to make sure you've explained the why to to your to your players so they understand it and they can talk about it and they can explain it to those who um, don't understand it or doubt it. Right? If it's on that car ride home and their parents are upset about about what the coach is doing, that your players understand the why behind what you're doing and can can explain it and they're bought in and and that way they're they're not necessarily maybe siding with their parent because they trust them more because they never really knew what your system was or the why behind it in the first place. So no, that's, that's, that's a really good point and something definitely worth considering for sure. Um, let me ask about practice here. So you got, you, you, you talked about some of the philosophies, you talked about some of the, the, uh, the important components of it, the close out, don't open the gate, things of that nature, the, the way that you, uh, kind of open or don't open yourself up. So as, as we're kind of building these layers and we're working on these things during practice, what 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 has the process of that been like? I mean, really, I would say it's pretty on par with teaching any other defense. Like, we're setting a standard. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what we expect. And then at that point, it's repeating that process. And frankly, at some point, if you're going to keep letting somebody go right, either you're going to get tired of me yelling at you for letting somebody go right, or you're going to get tired of hearing that question, hey, why is he going right? I don't know. Well, that's got to stop. <laughs> yeah. It's not a difficult concept. Like, I don't believe it is. I can tell my daughter, I have a five-year-old daughter, I can tell her to go left. She understands what that means. Like, we're, we're speaking on pretty simple terms here. And again, hitting that consistency is I don't care if we're doing a ISO drill, working on offensive ability. If you're the defender in the ISO drill, you should be forcing them left. And people argue like, well, when are your guys getting better at their right hand? Like my guys are getting better with both hands all the time. Like they're trying to get to their right hand, just like every kid on every team that we're trying to face. And they're getting better at their left hand because we're constantly forcing you to that non-dominant hand. And so that that in practice is what I will say going into year two, I have to get better at. Mm -hmm. I have to get better at enforcing it all the time. If we're genuinely going to sell out on this lock left concept, we as coaches have to focus. That has to be a focal part to everything that we do. Harping on that every single time somebody goes right. Yo, why is that happening? And I would say that last year I had my laxed moments on that because I was focusing on so many different things. But again, in retrospect and reflection on the job that I did, that's something that I feel like I can get better at. I think that that speaks to as, as we're always improving at coaches and something I, I can agree that I'm still getting better at is making sure that when you're doing a particular drill with your team, you may have a particular intent for that drill but you also have to consider all the other things, right, that you think are important as a coach and make sure that those are are being emphasized and that you're harping on those and refining those, even if that's not necessarily what that particular drill is focused on. Like, like you said, if you think that lock left defense is important, then it's got to be consistently brought up, 
refined, gone over, regardless of like what drill or whatever it is that you're working on. And that's something that like really uh, Mizzou's new head coach, Dennis Gates, uh, spoke at the Missouri Basketball Coaches Association Clinic this past month, I think. And the, the only thing he talked about was transition defense, like getting into a transition defense system and guys having roles and guys having positions. And that really opened my eyes because I was like, you know, like how often do we teach transition defense? Or like what do we teach about transition defense? Yeah, We either have a get-back guy or like as guys are running back down the floor, we're – cover hole first, those kind of things. But, like, why do we not assign positions and jobs in transition defense the same way we do in transition offense? And that's kind of what he talked about. And so I took that concept that he was teaching. He's very pressure-based, and so they had presses out of miss, makes, those kind of situations, and their positions were based on, like, how they were going to pressure you. Mm -hmm. Frankly – I don't have the athletes to pressure every school that we're going to play. So it would be unjust for me to expect my players to press all the time. But what I can expect my players to do is to force you left, regardless, make, miss, or draw. Like we this year are going to have guys in transition defensively setting up to force you towards the left side of the floor. And again, like you said, as we as coaches are constantly learning and trying to get better, this concept is actively changing like i'm actively trying to find new ways to fix it make it better and frankly some of those times i'm probably going to mess up and we're going to revert back to whatever we were doing before but i feel like if i wasn't doing those things i would be doing my players a disservice yeah and 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 it's kind of like what we talk about with with players sometimes or at least I know I do that like I I encourage mistakes right like you want mistakes to be made because that's that's where the growth comes in and I think that that's kind of the same mindset we have to have as coaches is we have to encourage ourselves to constantly look for ways to improve and get better and refine and understand that that's going to potentially mean that we're going to make mistakes but that's okay. So long as we learn from it and grow from it. And, and it sounds like you have the mentality of, of like, I'm ready to make mistakes. Like I'm ready to, to, to have that happen so that I can learn from them and get better. Oh yeah. One of the worst things I did last year, we put in a one, three, one over Christmas break, just trying to add a layer to our defense. And we blew a 20 point lead in one quarter and we never ran the one, three, one again. And we got to practice the next day, and I was like, guys, I'm sorry I wasted our practice time over Christmas break. We will never do that defense again. It's just not us. I thought we had a chance at it. But, again, growth and move on is kind of the mentality. And those conversations and that honesty, I felt like, added to the relationship with me and my players. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that, if you own it, they'll, they'll respect you for it. And I think that that – in turn will allow your players to be more willing to own their mistakes and be able to, you know, take ownership of it when they see that you're doing it. So I wanted to ask about, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to me, the idea that you are, you're looking at, everything that you're trying to do with this lock left defense philosophy and, and what, and the reasons behind it and the rationale behind it. I know you touched on this a little bit, but then 
I imagine you on the offensive side, you're thinking to yourself, you know, what, what can we do to avoid ourselves as best as possible? Like being in that situation. So a little bit of a, um, uh, question here that's popped in my mind. Like, are you doing a lot of work in your practices, working on offhand and working on, on those skills? Is that something that you're kind of thinking about as you're going through your own practice planning? You know, I mean, we do just yeah. because we're so lock left base that when we, anytime we're playing defense, you have to get better at it. Um, offensively, I'm kind of outside the norm as well. I know a lot of people are very motion based and I'm very not, that's just not the cloth I was cut from. We run a lot of sets. And so with that, like some of our sets are a lot harder to run when we're in lock left. Our, we, we have a secondary offensive set that we run almost every single time down the floor and almost every single time down the floor when I, I was at the school that I learned it, the ball went up the right hand side of the floor. Mm-hmm. That's great until the other team's just not allowing you to go right. Well, your two options are either to adjust and flip it to the left side of the floor or find a way to still get it to that right hand side and get it done. And so we kind of go through both of those situations and in games, I mean, we run this set every single time down the floor. Other teams scout it. They know exactly what we're going to do. The expectation is that you still do it and are efficient at it. And because we do what we do defensively in practice, they learn to overcome that adversity. And the first time, like the first few times we're doing it against lock left, we're turning the ball over every single time. <laughs> And that conversation's had, like, players are frustrated. They're looking at me, wanting to throw a temper tantrum. And it's like, hey, you got to figure it out. Like, you don't think that those other varsity-level defenders are going to figure out that we're trying to go to that spot? How is he going to get open? And how are you going to get the ball to him? Mm -hmm. Well, then they start figuring out their own solutions, and we start being able to talk through those. But it does definitely add that layer to our offense in practice and gives us those different looks. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a really interesting thing I think to always do as a coach when you think about your your defensive philosophy and how you like to refine it and how you like to get better at it is really have your players do a lot of the the work uh, with what they're doing on the offensive side and really seeing, right? what that defense is doing to them as an offensive player. And it really kind of forces them to try and think like, Hey, like what, what can, how can we try to like avoid being in this situation and try and get the action that it is that we want. And I've always personally liked it when, when the defense that I do and the things that I do in practice really frustrate my girls on the offensive end, because then they, then they really just have to, it really forces them to think a lot more and, and, and think about, you know, why is the defense having their way and why are they not able to do what they want against it? Oh, for sure. If you're, if your offense isn't frustrated at practice, it means your defense probably isn't very good and vice versa. Like if your offense is, or if your defense isn't getting scored on, that means your offense probably isn't very good. And that it was definitely funny to see. We did a lot of like varsity on JV type scrimmages and those JV guys fed on the fact that they frustrated that varsity group. Yeah. Like they would get one or two of those turnovers because we're forcing them to do things they don't want to do. And then you have these dudes that are all state caliber football players and baseball players. 
and they're getting frustrated because they can't get a basketball to the right hand side of the floor. And again, they they show that frustration, and then you see those JV guys really feeding off of that, and then they're playing ten times harder. So it just makes the practice environment that much better. Yeah, it's 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 always nice when you can do like those like JV versus varsity things and actually really feel like you're getting value out of it and really feel like there there's a lot of learning and a lot of just positive feelings, but also a good challenge being happening there too. Like I think that's just like so good for your program to see that. Awesome. That's really cool. Um so what are are there things in particular that that you do any like differently on like a drill standpoint than 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 maybe like you would on like a traditional like defense. I know we talked about the closeouts and, and things of that nature, but does anything look a little bit different in terms of what you need in terms of like help side or or th- or things of that nature? Um, or do your drills kind of stick to you know uh, things that 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 maybe coaches would more more commonly see in the drills they like to do? I mean, I feel like our drills are still pretty traditional. Like, it's just teaching spots different. Like, we use the term help and a half. Like, you're not just in help side, like traditional help side, trying not to get too far from those kids that do, like, either have aspirations going on and play college ball or do play AAU ball. Like, they're going to hear that term help side defense all the time. So, I'm going to take that. If you're a help for us, you're probably in the wrong spot. We need you at help and a half. That's about a step and a half further than where you feel like you should be. And the reason for that is, especially as that ball gets reversed over to the other side of the floor, like facing the basket, the left side of the floor, we get to the point where pretty much giving up baseline, expecting our posts to step over and kind of draw charges, those types of situations. Well, that involves everybody else helping a helper. Well, if we over-focus on helping, that isn't a problem. Like, those rotations are easier, that concept is easier, and what ends up happening is we leave that ball side wing open, well, with that close out to the right shoulder, that's easier with where we're helping to. That pass is really hard unless you're an elite left-handed passer. That driving left pass kick back to the wing behind you isn't an easy pass to make at full speed. Um, So we practice situations like that. We see a lot of different situations because our defense is different. And so just making sure our guys get into those situations and understand their reads and where we want them. Um, very much the same drills, just different concepts being taught. You mentioned how you're, as, as you look to kind of continue to improve and kind of refine and, and, and go from year to year, tweaking and changing things, are, are there, what, what things do you think as you continue to move forward with this, that, that you would look to kind of uh, a tweak or refine or adjust a bit? Yeah. As I grow like in, cause I'm still learning it as well. Yeah. Um, as I grow, I ask my players a lot of questions. The, A big area that we struggled, especially early, was ball screens. Just because, again, you're doing so much different than what you've ever done. Mm -hmm. If you're getting a ball screen to your right or to your left shoulder, but for the offensive player to go right, you have to get high on that screen and not allow that guy to get over the screen without running into you pretty much. 
Uh, if you're getting the screen to your left or to your right, their left, having the faith to go under that and kind of allow your guy to go left because they're doing exactly what we want them to do. Um, so just kind of learning to teach those things is something that I'm progressively getting better at. And the more situations we see, the more I see it against competition. Like I can do it against us in practice all day, but I'm only as smart as I am. So I'm not going to come up with every situation that a coach is going to throw at us. Every single time we see something new, I write it down and I'm like, okay, how are we going to attack this? Or how can we prevent us being attacked the way they just did? How can we help better? How can we defend that ball screen better? What do we need to communicate better? And so that's where I personally need to get better is just, again, knowing what to teach them and what situations to put them in in practice. That way it's not the first time they're seeing it in a game. Yeah. And no, that, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm sure, and this is kind of leads into my, my, my next uh, question here. I'm sure one of the things that probably uh, forces that change or makes you reflect or, or, or think about what to do different is, is based on the way that you see others uh, coaches try to attack it in the way that they try to uh, break this down. So, so let me just ask you about what, what, what have you, what do you see other coaches try to do to try and, and, and stop this? I, I know that they're obviously they're going to try and force to go right uh, most of the time, but what, what are they trying to do as counters to, to this defense? No, I, th I think about myself as a scout and the question, the first question I ask myself as a scout is are they playing man or zone? Like, all right, these are the things that we run against man or zone. Like, I don't really think about the different types of man that there are. Like, I may think about the different types of zone because you have a 2-3, you have a 1-2-2. Two, two. Like, you have – and we know a bunch of zones. Like, usually if you're playing man, like, all right, are you playing pack line? Are you playing uh, force middle? Like, how are they doing this? I don't necessarily know – like I haven't had conversations with coaches that I played against, whether on film it's that apparent that we're forcing left. I do know I had, I had one buddy, uh, he coached at a school that we played a couple times and we also played him in our jamboree last year. And he straight told me, he was like, man, you guys made us put in a whole new offense just to play you because we were stuck on the left side of the floor the whole time. <laughs> And so for me, that's a win because now you're wasting practice time to do something just against us. That gets you out of what you always do. That gets you out of what you're comfortable with. And so from my perspective, that's a win. Now, if we could do that against 27 teams instead of one, that would be ideal. But yeah. that conversation really stuck out to me that we were doing something right. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you are – frustrating a team to that point where their practice time has to get eaten up with your defensive philosophy as you mentioned right that means they're not working on all of the other potential things they can get better at and improving on those and rather it's it's almost like they have to be more reactive on on their practice plan rather than proactive and I'll take that all the time as a coach if, if, a, if a team has to do that against me for sure and I mean you kind of mentioned that like a lot of teams try to force themselves to go right or the alternative is like you take what we're giving you and you go left. Like, okay, I can accept you trying to force us to do what we constantly teach our guys not to do, which is allow you to go right. 
Like that makes me happy if you're going to make mistakes trying to get to your right hand. On the flip side, if you take what we're giving you, I can teach my guys in a few days how to attack a zone. And we can get better and we can learn those passes and I can throw them in those situations. I will be the first to tell you I'm not a great personal trainer type. Again, I wasn't a very good player, didn't learn a lot of that stuff. And so I lean on a lot of my assistants for the, those things. But I've yet to meet anybody that can teach a guy that's not very good with his left hand how to be good with his left hand in three days after a scout. And if you know that person, please send them my way because I'd love to get better with my left hand. But that's just kind of where we're at. Like, if you figure out we're forcing you left, how do you teach your eight guys how to be better attacking with their left hand in three days? It, it doesn't yeah. seem very feasible. Mm-hmm. Right. No, no, that's – and so so follow-up here because I know I know a couple people, maybe, maybe more than a couple, are, are listening, thinking this. And so I wanted to, I wanted to pick your brain on it uh, and, and kind of get your rebuttal to this question that, that, that maybe some, some listeners will have. And, and they might say something like, Coach, yeah, th- th- this sounds good in philosophy, but no, my, my, players, my players can work. They work on both hands. They got both hands down. Nothing like this would stop them. We're able to play on both sides of the ball and able to work anything on our offhand. I, I hear coaches, and I've talked about coaches, talk about like, hey, we don't have a strong hand. Like uh, both hands are our strong hands. You know, I hear a lot of a lot of discussion, a lot of things related to that. So I, I wanted to just kind of ask you to what to those coaches who would say something of that effect to you, what would your response in turn be to that? Perfect. I guess. That's exactly what I want to hear you say. Like, again, I'm just playing numbers. Like, I'm not an analytic guy, like, to an extreme, but 88% of people are right-handed. Like, you can say you're not, but at the end of the day, as humans, we're programmed to do a certain thing. Most people are programmed better with their right hand. It may not be a huge gap, but I would imagine there's a gap between your top player and your or your top player's right hand and your top player's left hand. I'd imagine there's also a gap between your fifth player's right hand and your fifth player's left hand. Mm-hmm. And if I can exploit three of those dudes, we're we're in a good place. And so I understand that philosophy. I understand working on all that stuff. But again, like in a utopian society where all of our kids play basketball all year round and are really putting that work in the gym and focusing on both hands, like that's great. That's not the world I live in. Like we're for for a Missouri basketball. Most of our athletes play two, three sports throughout a year. The odds of every single one of your dudes having a great offhand and great dominant hand just ain't there. And that. That's just my perspective. You may have a different situation. You may face different people, but I've yet to face a team. Like I was assistant coach at a 6A school. We faced dudes that didn't have a left hand. I feel like it's applicable everywhere. The the numbers just sort of bear it out, right? Yeah. Like whether that's your philosophy or not, like that's fair. There's people that will argue with me about running sets. There's people arguing with me about running zones. Like like we talked about earlier, there's a thousand different ways to cut this cake. As long as you do it efficiently, any of them can work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I 100% I, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I've liked that we kind of circled back to that idea of a lot of different ways to be to be successful at this. Now that that's really cool. Uh, before we hit kind of our last segment, because, you know, this might be something that is definitely new or kind of something a lot of coaches haven't considered. I want to make sure that you've kind of emptied out your arsenal about, you know, any 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 other talking points or any things that you wanted to specifically address about this particular defense. So it, was there anything that um, we didn't quite get to or anything you wanted to elaborate on a little bit further? I mean, the big thing about lock left in that I feel like has made me successful with it is I have what I feel is a great coaching network. Uh, guy that gave me my first shot, Josh Wilson at Fort Osage. I ask him questions all the time. Eric Benica, coach at Smithville here in town, ask him questions all the time. And those two specifically, my assistant coaches, other coaches that I face in the uh, area, like I have no problem asking guys that I'm going to play questions. Yeah. Because I'm trying to make my team and myself better. And for the most part, the guys that I coach against are of the same philosophy. Like me asking them questions and them asking me questions makes them better. Sharing stuff makes us both better. And we learn from each other. And that mindset with this and with everything I've done coaching just helps. So ask the question. Attempt the thing that you feel like if you feel like what I've said during this makes a little bit of sense and you're like, Hey, that might work. Try it. Like what's the worst that's going to happen by you trying that. And that, that was kind of the philosophy we went into it when we started it. Like me and my buddy were sitting at his house watching this video. I'm like, yo, I think this could work. And he's like, well, I mean, what are they going to do? Fire you because you play defense weird. Like, I guess that's true. I mean, sure they could, but I hope not. Yeah, and so that that kind of took it off for us. I, no, I, 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 it's kind of one of those things that makes sense in the sense of like what you said. Like, if you think, if you think it's maybe gonna work, or you think it's gonna gonna be there for you, like you won't know until you dive into it, right? Like you dive in and, and see what happens. It's not it's not something you want to at least in my mind with a lot of things of coaching, like. If there's something that you're curious about or something you want to do, like do it. Uh, you can't kind of go halfway on it or can't partially implement it. Cause if you only partially implement it or partially believe in it, then it's not going to ever fully work or you're never going to fully know if it's going to work or not. So try it out. And like you said, what's, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's not going to be that dire. For to sure. Wrap, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you're good coach. Go ahead. I mean, we're in the opera. We're in the, business of failure. If you don't fail in this business, you're in a great situation and probably lucked out in a lot of spots. Like if you're not willing to accept failure and the opportunity at failure, how are you going to get players to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. No, that's, that's really well said. Coach to wrap up. There's a couple questions I ask every guest. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in and start with this first one here, which is Thinking back on your coaching career, what is a moment from your coaching career that you think others listening would be able to learn from? Uh, I think the largest thing from my coaching experience or coaching moments is the value of opportunities. And that comes from both sides of the spectrum. If you're a person looking for an opportunity, you have to be willing to seek those out and kind of willing to be vulnerable 
in doing so. Like if you stay in that comfortable situation, you only do what you're comfortable with. Your growth is only as big as your comfort zone. And so being willing to put yourself out there and find those opportunities and take chances on yourself is so valuable. You know, I, I kind of lucked into a lot of situations in my coaching career, but a lot of them have paid off and easily could not have based on my ability to bet on myself. Mm-hmm. But at the opposite end of that spectrum, if you're a coach with opportunities, whether, I mean, like I said earlier, Josh Wilson at Fort Osage, there was no reason for him to let me be on his staff. No reason. I was a 19-year-old kid when I started. I was just in college, sent him a message on Twitter. Next thing you know, I'm at his camp. And that, that whole process, again, there's every reason in the world for him to tell me no but he didn't. Uh, I've been in, I've reached out to college coaches too specifically. Uh, Sundance Wicks was up at uh, Missouri Western. I think he's at Wyoming now. And then Fred Quarterbaum is an assistant at KU. I've reached out to both of them in situations and they allowed me to come observe practices and just build that network. Both of them have had hour long conversations with me on a phone. And we're talking dudes that are Division two, division one coaches wasting their time. I mean, I say wasting their time, spending their time talking to a, at the time I was a C team basketball coach in Independence, Missouri. Like they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to use their, I mean, I have no idea what they're getting paid in the positions they're in, but I guarantee you they could justify not spending an hour talking to me on the phone about whatever they did. <laughs> but because they did that, I gained so much respect for them. I changed my mentality, like my willingness to talk to people is so much different. My willingness to extend opportunities to people that want those is so much different because again, like I didn't deserve those opportunities, right? Looking back at myself, I didn't feel like I deserved those opportunities, but because somebody saw something in me, I'm now where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that's what I feel like the, the coaching community is beautiful for like that helping each other get to where we all want to be. Yeah. I've, I've said this repeatedly and I know a long time listeners know this, but I think that the basketball coaching community in particular is just, is just the best in terms of how much that will help one another, how much will uh, share advice, share wisdom, welcome new coaches into the coaching ranks. Like it is truly incredible. And I am, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for, for so many coaches who, who, have talked to me and, and have been willing to uh, allow allow me to pick their brain. It's it's really cool for sure. Awesome. Oh, for sure. I mean the the Missouri Basketball Coaches Association mm-hmm. is starting to put together a new thing where the, we have mentors and mentees for newer coaches to talk to older coaches. Uh, I know Chris Nimmo and Corey Elms are really piloting that. And just for me, again, you don't know what you don't know about head coaching until you're in that position. You don't know what you don't know about assistant coaching until you're in the position. Having people to lean on and get better, like while facilitating that knowledge that the experiences that they've been through is incredible. And I wouldn't have the success or the opportunities that I have without those people being willing to do that. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. That's, that's really well said. Coach, to wrap up, I give every guest what I call a 60-second soapbox, your platform to get out. 
like a closing thought, a final message, kind of this final idea that you want to leave the listeners with. Very open-ended, very open to your interpretation. And no, I am not timing you. So if you go longer than a minute, that's perfectly okay too. So I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to open up the floor. I'm going to give it to you. And uh, I'm just going to let you take it from here. That's funny. You had that part in. I know I can talk. I can talk with the oh, best Oh, I say it to everyone. Uh, it's not a dig at you or anything. <laughs> Uh, honestly, my soapbox is that our duty as coaches is to facilitate the love and enjoyment of basketball. Uh, like I said earlier, this generation, uh, for somebody who, again, isn't much older than them, is very different than ours. Trying to coach them how we were coached and maybe just expect that blind compliance or expect them to love the work for the work. Like, that's great, and that worked for our generations. But from my perspective and experiences that I've had, one, this generation is very about the why. They want to know why they're doing something. They want to know what the reason is. And if we can't explain that to them or are unwilling to explain that to them, we're not going to get the best out of them. And then the second piece of that is we have to find ways to make our sport enjoyable. Uh, if you watch The Last Dance, which I'm sure if you're – listening to this podcast, you probably did. Phil Jackson said something great, like our goal was to create something that people wanted to be a part of. And if you do that, I feel like that's all you can do. That's my approach to a basketball program. If I can create a program that our best athletes want to be a part of, our students want to come out and support, our community falls in love with, we're going to be successful just by those merits. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we have to take that initiative as coaches to get people to fall in love with us and our game and trust that our success and our knowledge will carry us through. So that's my soapbox. Enjoyment of the game, love of the game, and respect our students' knowledge and desire to know why because they're entitled to that as much as we are to teach them. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great point to end on. I think if we consider ourselves teachers and, and coaches, we absolutely, as you mentioned, have to explain the why and, and that creates creates that buy-in and that understanding and, and actually is what is teaching them the game of basketball when they understand the why behind the things that we're telling them to do. So really cool point to end up, end up on. And, and coach, I want to thank you for spending some time talking about uh, your locked left defense, the philosophy, the drills, the kind of things that you work on and and kind of the next steps forward that you have as you continue to grow and as you continue to learn and refine and, and continue to get better at the implementation of this. So it'll be exciting to kind of follow along with your journey and see how, how the program builds. I'm sure you guys are going to continue to do great things. So Coach Lewis, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and best of luck this upcoming year. For sure. I appreciate the opportunity, Coach. Thank you guys so much for listening. This was another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Make sure to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, or reach us directly through email at basketballteacherpodcast at gmail.com. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you next time.